Uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Jesus changes water into wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and, and his disciples had, had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why, why do you involve me? Jesus re replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it, it had come from, though the servants who, who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Good morning, everyone. If you um, don't know who I am, I'm Anna. I'm part of the team here at Christchurch. Um, and today I'm kicking off our sermon series looking at the seven signs, um, seven signs in John's Gospel. If you don't know what that means and what the seven signs are, worry not. You are in the right place. But I guess what we are all familiar with is the fact that miraculous events were a major part of Jesus's life and ministry. They were a key part of the way he interacted with the world and particularly with people in all sorts of need. And in the Synoptic Gospels, so that's in Matthew and Mark and Luke, loads of these miracles are recorded, probably 34, 35, something like that. And the Greek word used in those Gospels for, for these miracles is dunamis. It means mighty work or deed of power. It's the usual Greek word used for a miracle. It's the origin of our word dynamite, that sort of boom, that massive event, that thing with a big impact. And the occurrence of these miracles in these Gospels says something about the coming of the kingdom of God. But John's Gospel is a little bit different because John uses a different word for miracle. Instead of dunamis, works of power, he uses the word samion which means signs. I don't know what springs to mind for you when you think of the word signs, but for me, it's something like this. All these things up here. And the point of the road signs is that they point us to something else, don't they? So when you're driving along and you see the little duck, 
you don't think, oh, someone's put a duck on the side of the road to brighten up my journey today, how lovely. What you think is, I need to watch out for ducks crossing the road for the next few hundred metres. Incidentally, as an aside, has anyone ever seen a duck crossing the road after seeing the duck sign? You have, Caris. I thought it was just a thing that I'd never seen. Okay, right. But the point is they point you towards something else. And just like the road signs point us towards something outside of themselves, by calling these signs, these miracles signs, Samion, John is alerting us to the fact that these particular seven events in Jesus' ministry point us to something deeper, something more real, something more significant than what appears to be on the surface. And John's gospel is like that throughout. No detail is accidental or incidental. Everything pretty much is rich with symbolic meaning, open to deeper interpretation. Some famous Bible scholar, whose name I now can't remember, um, said of John's gospel that it's shallow enough for a toddler to wade in, but deep enough to drown an elephant. And there's something of that in it. You can see what's on the surface and you can understand the story and go, wow, Jesus did some really cool stuff. Or you can really dive in and see what God is teaching us through it. What these signs are pointing towards. So John was aware of all the miracles that Matthew and Mark and Luke mentioned, but he makes an intentional choice about which ones to include. And he selects seven of these signs, which is not insignificant because the number seven in in Hebrew is the number for completion and wholeness and perfection. He selects these seven signs for a purpose. And that purpose is revealed right at the very end of John's gospel in chapter 20, in the last two verses, where he says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Over the course of John's Gospel, these seven signs build on one another and sort of crescendo in this amazing event when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead which of of course itself foreshadows Jesus' own resurrection. And these are the miracles, the signs that John selects in order that we might see and know and believe that Jesus is the one sent from God. The one introduced to us in chapter one of John as the word who was with God and was God from the beginning. Through him whom all things were made and in whom there's light and life. C.S. Lewis said that God doesn't do magic tricks. He doesn't do things just to be impressive, just to wow the audience. And John says these miraculous things that Jesus did, they weren't just dunamis, they weren't just dynamite to make an impression or to blow us away. They weren't even just about helping people in need. They were signs. And if these are signs, then I guess the question is, to what are they pointing Or maybe perhaps better, to whom are they pointing? And hopefully over the next seven weeks or so, we'll start to answer those questions together. So today we kick off um, with that reading that Clyde brought us before, um, with the first of the seven signs um, from John chapter 2, where Jesus is at a wedding in the small town of Cana, which is in Galilee, and where Jesus turns water into wine. 
It's been a favourite of Sunday schools and assemblies for years. Um, it's one we all know and love, isn't it? So Jesus is at a wedding with his mum, his disciples, lots of other friends and acquaintances, probably lots of family members. The Son of God, the one who the first chapter of John speaks about as the Word made flesh who made his dwelling among us, really is dwelling among the people, one of many guests doing a normal everyday thing at a normal wedding. And in the culture of the time or place, weddings were a big deal. Weddings are still a big deal, aren't they? Um, I know they are, but back then they were even more of a big deal. A huge social occasion lasting several days, a week even, where the whole village was invited to join in. Hospitality, as you probably know, is a really key part of Middle Eastern culture. Um, still is today, um, but especially was um, back in the first century. So buying the drinks or providing a meal wasn't just a nice thing to do. It was crucial to your social standing. So much so that a failure of a, guest, uh, of a host to provide for their guests, and in the event of a wedding, the bridegroom was responsible, bear that in mind, um, a failure to provide for guests risked resulting in being publicly shamed, and sometimes even, apparently, a lawsuit against the host. So, um, yeah, next time you're hosting a big event for us at your house, Hannah and Chris, just uh, if you can make sure you don't run out of stuff so that nobody has to sue you, that'd be great. Um, it wasn't just a case that once the wine on your table had run out, you got your own wallet out and hit the bar. Running out of wine at a wedding was a really big deal. So when disaster strikes and they've run out, Mary steps in. They have no more wine. I love it. I can just picture her, can't you? This sort of mother of a 30-odd-year-old man. They've not got any wine. Quick, you can do something. Do your thing. And I just, I just love imagining what has been going on at their dinner table at home, that when they run out of wine, she knows, I know, let's get Jesus. Here's my kind of dinner guest. And Jesus, though, he doesn't seem too impressed, does he? I don't know if you noticed the response. Woman, sometimes in our nice English translations, we change it to dear woman to make it sound a bit nicer, but woman, why do you involve me? It doesn't sound particularly warm, does it? I think, apparently, so I'm told by people who know more about the Greek than me, it's not as disrespectful, it's not disrespectful in the way it sounds to us. It's not particularly warm, um, it's not a word people usually use for their mother, but it's not disrespectful. But he says to her, my hour, my time has not yet come. And this is something Jesus says over and over again in John's Gospel, about 25 times, my hour has not yet come, or he talks about his hour. And when he does that, what he's talking about is his mission and his purpose, the reason he's here in the world, and particularly culminating ultimately in his death and resurrection. My hour has not yet come. But being his mother, Mary appears to ignore him altogether and perseveres anyway, telling the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. And so they do. They take these six huge stone water jars and as instructed, they fill them to the brim. And then when the water is drawn out and taken to the master of the banquet, it turns out to be the finest wine of the whole evening. This is an impressive party trick. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's uh, been in or perhaps taught a Bible lesson to kids where you put the red food colouring in the jug first and then you top it up with water and you pour it out and, 
it's wine. And there's lots of little gasps from very sweet little people. But Jesus wasn't doing a party trick to impress his friends. I don't think he even performed this miracle simply to get the bridegroom out of a sticky situation, although I think there probably was some of that too. This was a sign. When Jesus turned water into wine, he was pointing beyond the immediate miracle to something more. So what was that something more to which this sign was pointing? I don't know, did you notice where the water came from? It was from those um, six stone jars. But the water that they contained was never intended for drinking. That water, it says in verse 6, was for ceremonial washing. Old Testament law was very concerned with the distinction between clean and unclean, spiritually clean and unclean. And this water was to be used for the ritual cleansing of what was unclean in order to make it clean. So you'd wash before you ate so you didn't take the unclean things into your body. And it's this water, not the drinking water, that Jesus turns into wine. And not just any old wine, but the best wine of the day. It says, doesn't it, everyone brings out the choice wine first, so that then when people are too drunk, they don't notice if it's rubbish. But you have saved the best until last. Jesus creates the wine from a symbol of old covenant Judaism. Jesus isn't just rescuing a party here. He's here saying, I am the Messiah, the word of the opening chapter of John's Gospel. I'm here to establish a new order, to cleanse you not just on the outside like the water did, but on the inside too. In John 1 verse 16, it talks about Jesus from whom we have all received grace upon grace, grace in place of grace already given, This sign is about the grace of the gospel. The good news that Jesus loves us, that God loves us, that Jesus lived and died and rose again, defeating death for us so that we can live forever with him and so that all things can be made new. And Jesus brings this grace in place of the grace of the law. And not only is the wine that he makes the finest and the tastiest wine, there's also an awful lot of it. Somewhere in the region of 600 litres of the stuff. I am more of a gin girl than a wine girl, but even I know that that is a lot of wine. Those jars were big anyway, but Jesus told the servants to fill them to the brim, the absolute brim, so that there is more than enough to go round, not just for the wedding guests, but for each of us too. God's grace and love and forgiveness and compassion is big enough and wide enough to extend to me. And if that's the case, then I know it's big enough and wide enough to extend to you too. When the old things run out, or when they don't quite seem to work, Jesus fills us with grace to make all things new. At the wedding, they, reached, they waited until they reached the end of their human resources before they turned to God. How often do we do the same? How often do we try to do everything on our own strength, get through everything in our own strength, rather than throwing ourselves onto God's mercy, receiving his compassion, and comfort, and forgiveness, and strength, and friendship. 
of which there is more than enough to go round, and compared to which everything that we've known before pales into insignificance, like water compared to wine. Verse 11 of today's reading says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth, and his disciples believed in him. Will we recognize Jesus' glory today too? As the one sent from God, as God living among us and for us. And will we choose to believe, and by believing, have abundant and overflowing life in his name? Amen.